Papa Was a Preacher by Eileen Porter, read by Amy Zook on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. Just as once a year the Jews went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, so go our preachers once a year to the Methodist Jerusalem annual conference. And although Papa declared that revival meeting season was the most satisfying of the year with conference next in importance, we disagreed. Revival time and even the excitement of Christmas paled in insignificance when compared with that week in October each year when we were mentally suspended above the map of Texas, anxiously waiting the time when annual conference would drop us on a town in which to settle. Without the word conference, a Methodist vocabulary would not be Methodist. There is the church conference, held whenever deemed necessary by the pastor, and the quarterly conference, when the presiding elder comes to take charge, the district conference, when delegates meet at a central church in the district for reports, and finally the climatic annual conference, in which the bishop presides. To me, the bishop took on the aspect of the kindly gulliver looking over the Lupitian pastors, smiling benevolently down at them as they crowded around, shouting up at him a report of their year's work. Then he would hold them momentarily one at a time in his giant hand while he scanned the map for a suitable spot in which to put them down, and after giving his blessing would stride away until the same time next year when the scene would be reenacted. For on the last day of conference, after much deliberation on the part of the cabinet made up by the bishop and the presiding elders, appointments are read. Every preacher waits with bated breath until his name is read harnessed to the name of a town. This assignment he and his family are to accept and act upon without comment. Under such a system, no Methodist preacher is ever without a church and no church without a preacher. Papa was and is a member of the North Texas Conference, which is one of the five in the state. He has remained in that conference for 40 years and has served 18 different pastorates. Ours with the Methodist Episcopal Church, South. Explanation for South in the name has been humorously explained by some as meaning that we are a little south of God. In truth, it was an outcome of the time when Methodists in the North and South refused to see eye-to-eye on slavery, so those in the North continued to be the Methodist Episcopal Church, while below the Macy-Dixon line, we became the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Time and intelligence, the Southern part of the intelligence being largely embodied by the Bishop John M. Moore, have since united the two, and we are simply the Methodist Church. But the form of the government is ever the same, and the conference, as well as October, still comes every year. Each year, before Papa went to conference, countless things had to be accomplished. And most important was the conference claims, must be paid in full. Conference claims is a blanket term covering benevolences of the church at large, such as home and foreign missions, the American Bible Society, hospital and orphanage appropriations, educational work, the Bishop's Fund, and countless other items. At a local stewards meeting once, an item mentioned raised an objection. When the list of conference claims was read, ending with, and the Bishop's Fund, One man's ear failed to catch the final letter on the final word. He rose to a point of order. Now, Brother Porter, he said, I want to be a good member of the church and pay my part. But there's one thing I'm not willing to contribute to. That's the bishop's fun. Why can't the bishop pay for his own fun? Papa felt nothing short of failure unless he could report at conference claims paid in full. And to ensure that happy moment, he and his stewards would spend every day of the week before his departure visiting church members individually and meet every night at the church to report and plan the next day campaign. During that week, we went about our activities in a detached manner, meeting our friends with the I shan't be with you long attitude and rhythmically dotting over conversation with if conference moves us or if we are here next year. The solicitation given those about to be lost forever was gratifying to us, even if we didn't move. Every request made of Papa would be pigeonholed with the sentence, Wait till after conference. 
Mother, preoccupied, would toss back the identical answer to every question. Wait till after conference. Until it seemed that the whole universe was standing still, waiting till after conference. The night before he left, Papa would stay and stay at the church. We dared not go to bed until we knew whether the report would be paid in full. At about midnight, he would come in, wane and weary. With needle poised in midair and with hopeful eyes, Mother would ask, Did you make it? And at Papa's smiling replied, Paid in full. There would be a ninefold sigh of relief, after which we could go to our beds and Mother would sew the last button and the last new nightshirt for Papa. There were always four of these, the usual three checked dimity and the one emergency flannel one in the event of a Texas norther. They were made after the fashion of the day, split up the sides, fitting like a sack and reaching to the four inches above the ankles. Papa's wardrobe was new at conference time, often the gift of various members, and at the moment of departure, as he paraded up and down the room before us, resplendent in new suit, new shirt, new tie, socks, hat, and shoes, buttons would pop from the coverings of nine proud chests. All of us helped with the packing. It was Papa's habit to bring a gift to each of us, and I can remember cautioning Mother, let's be sure to leave room in the bag for the presents he's going to bring back. Frequently, it was not only Papa's wardrobe, which must be new and proper for conference, but also that of one of the children, for it was a high privilege to go with him when we became 11 years old. It was a mountaintop experience, getting all new clothes at once, riding the train with Papa in an exclusive companionship, proudly sitting with him during the sessions of conference, and being importantly introduced to the other preachers. It did not occur to us that the tedious business sessions were dull. The build-up had been too glowing, and we bravely sat through, telling ourselves it was wonderful. And besides, we were missing a whole week of school. Recently, at a family conclave, when we were comparing reactions to that journey at 11 years, I asked, but why did we go at that particular time, the year we were 11? Hugh the preacher explained, well, Christ conversed with the scholars in the temple at the age of 12. I suppose it was because our understanding was more developed at that time. To which Candler retorted, understanding my eye, it was the last year we could ride the train for half fare. When Papa returned from conference with the news that we could settle back into the same groove for another year, there were shouts of joy and blessings on the presiding elder. But if the verdict was that we were to depart immediately, bag and baggage, to live in another town, attend another school, and make other friends, it prompted an indignant meeting. The room would be filled with moans, and how would the presiding elder like for somebody to tell him to move and leave all his friends? Or, I'd like to tell the bishop what I think. In the midst of the lamentations would come Mother's voice, commanding attention by its contrast and calmness. Now, children, the appointments are not only given by the bishop and the presiding elder. They are made by the Lord. To which there would be a mumbled echo. Yeah, but they could get the Lord's directions mixed up. But the first pangs of grief were blurred in the feverish activity of getting out of the house before the new preacher's family arrived. Packing was reduced to a minimum. Papa moved himself in his books. Mama's chief conservator was transporting her private conservatory of plants. And as for us, we each made ready his own particular treasures. Mother discouraged the accumulation of knickknacks, however, and unless that article was useful or lent some particular beauty, she saw no reason to retain it. Packing over, tearful goodbyes were said, individually and collectively, at the farewell party given by church members. With heavy hearts, we would ask ourselves, How can we leave all this behind? How can Jeanette leave John? Gil leave Marie? Will Raybon ever smile again, torn from Sarah, Anne, Joan, and Lou? Believe we must and did. And strangely enough, when the golden cord binding us to the past was definitely cut, there was a tingle of excitement at the f thought of the future. We were surprised at our own courage, but as Emerson had said, a greater part of courage is the courage of having done the thing before. And this particular thing we had done time and time again. Sturdy little cockbirds that we were, uprooted from one soil, we could easily take root in another.
Our whole thought now was what we should find at the new place. Would the parsonage be large or small, new or old, well or sparsely furnished? Oh, if only the beds were wood instead of iron. And if the living room furniture wasn't wicker, would there be room for a tennis court? And the church, was it run down or in good condition? The church and parsonage were simple a unit in our mind, one as important as the other. And we took equal pride in the appearance which they made to the secular world. A member of one of the churches tells of the night we arrived in that particular town. The membership had been horrified to learn that the new preacher had seven children. That was before Candler's advent. But they were hoping to take it with grace. In keeping with the custom, several ladies were at the parsonage with a lighted house and a warm supper waiting for the welcome of the new family. They heard the car drive up, and Mrs. Birdie stepped out of the front door to receive us. The first sight her eyes discerned through the gathering dusk was that of a ten-year-old boy scrambling from the Model T Ford without opening the door. It was Raybon. He hit the ground running and made a complete circle around the church, returned to the running board of the car, and before anyone else had time to alight. The church is in pretty good condition but needs painting, he reported. One of the front windows is broken, seats about 300. He continued until he had given all the facts gathered on his scouting tour, after which the family began to take seriously the business of getting out of the car and inspecting the new house. The first day after a move, before a single box was unpacked, Papa would build a swing in a playhouse for Sister Amy and help the boys lay off their tennis court. He did this to counteract that gone feeling when it should suddenly engulf us, as it was bound to do. Then he and Mother would begin figuring out how to fit their brood into this particular coop. It was usually a problem of higher mathematics, especially if a degree of privacy for each was attained, and Mother insisted upon this. A guest room was out of the question. Since there was only two girls, the nicest bedroom was conceded to Jeanette and me, with strings attached, that it must also serve as a guest room. A part of the equipment of every parsonage was one or two folding beds, the huge wardrobe-looking type that formed a mirror when folded, left the legs dangling in the air as it ascended, and would ascend sometimes without warning or provocation. It could be coaxed to the floor with a vigorous pull of the legs. Cecil and Hugh, being the oldest, were expected to be the most sacrificial and usually wound up folded into the folding bed. Cecil declares that to this day, when he is too sleepy at bedtime to be wholly conscious, he finds himself groping in midair for an iron leg. If after fitting into our assigned places, there was simply too much congestion, Papa and the boys would build a sleeping porch, God's gift to a Texan on a summer night. Orientated as to spaces, we would then begin to cast our eyes at the furniture. Parsonages were furnished in the early years, piece by piece, from members. When Brother Castevan gave his wife a new chair for Christmas, she would donate the old one to the parsonage. And so furnishings were usually a melting pot of the tastes of the women in the community after their tastes had changed. In later years, however, furnishings were bought by the Women's Missionary Society with the approval of the preacher's wife. It was a responsibility of the Missionary Society to take care of the needs of the parsonage, and it's once in so far as they could or were inclined. At their first meeting after conference, they would give the pastor's wife an opportunity to state those needs. When Mother returned from such meetings, she would be bombarded with eager questions. Will they get a new rug for the dining room? Will they take the wicker furniture out and buy a divan? We could always be certain of one treasured piece of furniture. No parsonage afforded this luxury, but Papa considered music as an essential to our souls, as was food to our bodies. And in the early years, he invested in a piano, a prized possession. As a member of the family, it was moved to 18 different towns to sing out its melody. Ensconced in the new home, we looked to our next bridge to cross from past to present, school. Each system differed from the last, and Papa had to spend the first two or three days at the school building talking for us, like Moses for the Israelites, lest we become lodged in a greater two behind. Sometimes this happened in spite of Papa's presence, and there was nothing to do but bear the shame of going back a grade through no greater fault than of having moved. 
If we should be a few chapters ahead of the same grade in textbooks, we dare not display any such knowledge under penalty of becoming instantly unpopular with our schoolmates. It was better to be quiet and give the impression of slowness to teachers. After school adjustments came the weekend and our first Sunday in the new charge. Papa would be on his dignity, with his unruly hair brushed carefully into place, and we would be burdened with angel wings, which could be shred the following week on closer acquaintanceship. At the close of the service, Papa would say, Let us sing number 49. If there are those present who wish to unite with the church, let them come forward during the singing of the hymn. As the last stanza began, the entire family would file to the front pew, overflowing it and causing the new member recorder to work overtime. Beginning with Mother, Papa would call out each of our names, then shake hands with us very impersonally and say, We rejoice to recognize you as a member of this church and pray that you may be numbered with Christ's people here and with his saints in glory everlasting. Before I was old enough to belong to the church, I could hardly wait till the time when I could be among the group and solemnly shake hands with Papa in such formal manner before an audience while he said those words, and with his saints in glory everlasting. When I was nine, the desire to be a member became overwhelming. As we were moving from one town to another, I notified Papa that when the family presented itself for transferring of membership, I would be among those to march up. It pleased him greatly, and plans were made. On Saturday afternoon, Gil and Candler, jumping from the roof of a shed, which was part of our new homestead, dared me to follow. I took the dare and landed with one foot turned under the weight of my body. Hugh rushed out to pick up a potential church member with a badly sprained ankle. The doctor warned, no walking on that foot for a week. The older boys made crutches for me. With crutches, I walked, trailing clouds of glory, the envy of Gil and Candler and our newly made playmates. At supper time, Papa regretfully said, well, honey, don't grieve too much about not joining the church tomorrow. You can do that later when your foot gets better. My spirits fell. All afternoon, I had been mentally rehearsing the role for church tomorrow. Hauling to the front of the church on crutches, a brave little girl, in spite of her affliction, giving her life to the church. And now to be denied this joy! Reading despair in my face, Mother said, Why, Father, I see no reason for her being disappointed. Two of the boys can carry her to the front, and she can stand on her crutches while she's being received. And so it was. When the time came, Cecil and Hugh locked their forehands to their wrists and made a pack saddle. Stooping long enough for me to sit on it, they then straightened full height and carried me high between them down the middle aisle and gently lowered me at the front pew, where Ed stood ready with the crutches. In my mind, I was one of the persons pictured on my Sunday school card following after Jesus, the lame, the halt, and the blind. And with double joy, I entered the portals of the church on crutches. But one memorial for Sunday in the new place, Papa closed the service without extending an invitation to anybody to join the church. In his confusion, he forgot everything. There was a reason for his abrupt benediction. At the beginning of the service, when Papa stepped into the pulpit, aware of his new responsibility, he began, Brothers and sisters, it is with joy that my family and I come to live in your midst and to serve you. Just then, a wave of merriment rippled through the congregation. Papa had no intention of being humorous. He swallowed and went on. After the service, we would like to meet you personally, and, and, and we want you to always feel welcome at the parsonage. Again, the congregation smiled, and this time their heads turned in unison, while their eyes focused upon the area of the rostrum. Pop continued, And now for the text. Will you turn with me to the seventh chapter of Matthew, where we will find the words of Christ, Judge not that ye be not judged. At the end of the text, when Papa again raised his eyes, he saw a uniform turning of heads and suppressed smiles. He slicked his hair down with both hands, straightened his tie, and launched determinedly upon his sermon. During his comments on the scripture, the congregation was alternatively attentive and amused. Some sat at the edge of their pews as if they were expecting something to laugh at. And they were not disappointed, although Papa could only wonder what it was and why this new congregation would not take him seriously. He struggled through the service and quickly closed it.
Then he learned the provocation for all the mirth. One of the vestibules of the pulpit end of the church was unused, and the other was used for the assemblage of the choir before the service. On this particular morning, when the janitor opened the door, he discovered in the unused vestibule a mother cat with six baby kittens, thoroughly at home and happy. Anticipating the disturbance which kitten meows might cause during the service, he put the whole feline family in the alley. But a mother cat in the alley is a mother still. Undaunted, she bided her time and waited for a chance to reestablish her family. It came when the choir marched in and left the door from their vestibule partly open. Just as Papa took his place at the pulpit, the cat pushed through the opening, dangling from her teeth the sleepy-eyed furry kitten, and walked sedately across the platform back of Papa. Depositing her little one in the home vestibule, she retraced her steps and was soon back with another. Oblivious of her audience, she carried the kittens home, one at a time, silently weaving back and forth while behind Papa, while the congregation in the choir watched in gleeful speculation as whether the family would consist of quadruplets, quintuplets, or sextuplets. After the first Sunday in a new place, life would take on a more serene pace, though not an everyday one. There was still the pounding. On a stated night, soon after the first Sunday, each member of the church welcomed the new pastor, or re-welcomed the same one, with a pound of substance. The pound was accompanied to the parsonage door by the donor, for the gift without the giver is bare. Theoretically, poundings were a surprise, but the grapevine telegraph always relayed the news to the parsonage sometime before the occasion. Still, we had to appear surprised. It delighted my theatrical heart to see the entire family play-acting, registering complete surprise each time a pound and its giver came through the door. The pound was also theoretical, was more often 10 pounds of sugar, potatoes, flowers, or cornmeal. Pounds by pounds that came, covering space in the kitchen and overflowing to the dining room table. The name of the giver was on each gift, scrawled with a pencil on a brown paper sack, or neatly written on a card tied with a ribbon, pasted on a jar of jelly, or carved with a knife on a potato or an apple. When the crowd had gathered, a strictly unrehearsed program would be given, composed of a takeoff on the preacher or stunts about church going. Teasing delighted Papa's heart, and he would give it or take it with equal grace. On pounding night, he was all aglow. Like another human being, he enjoyed the assurance that he was esteemed, and he welcomed these pounds as tokens of appreciation. While the children romped on the lawn, the impromptu program for the adults would usually end with a sing-song around the piano, beginning with Shall We Gather at the River, on through such favorites as Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and closing with Blessed Be the Ties That Bind. As the footsteps of the last departing guests died away, we would gather to give a close inspection to the giant confusion that was our kitchen, and to envision weeks ahead when beans and cornbread would play second fiddle. Papa would get pencil and paper to record each contribution with the name of its contributor as we called out jar of strawberry preserves from the Lanes, can of lard from Grandmother Neal, sack of oranges from the Gibsons, and on into the night until we fell asleep on our feet. But family prayer would not, could not begin until each item, from fresh spinach to pickled pig's feet, was listed and stored away. All of us had to be present at the inventory to record mentally what was given by whom so that we could say next when we met a member, we enjoyed the macaroni you brought to us, or I never tasted better figs than those you gave us. Sometimes we thanked the giver of the figs for the macaroni and the giver of the macaroni for apples, but it was a mistake from the head and not of the heart. A mistake of the heart for me would have been to thank anybody for pickled pig's feet. None of us liked them, and I could see no reason for giving them. One day, soon after a pounding, Candler and I met a village square, Brother Hobson, the donor of a huge jar of pickled pig's feet. Hello, children, he said. We had a mighty good time at your folks' house the other night. He paused expectantly. I snapped my mouth shut together. 
as tight as a clam, determined not to tell a lie. The candler fed the expectant heart. Yes, sir, thank you, he replied, and I'll bet those pig's feet you gave us came from your prized pig. After the pounding, with life moving along less excitingly, Papa began calculating on painting or rebuilding some part of the church property. Although it was an added strain on Mother, she would abet Papa in these plans. If the primary chairs needed painting, she would appeal to the missionary society to buy the paint, saying, I know you feel as I do. I don't want my children to associate religion with shabbiness. The house of God should always be bright and shining. And snatching a few minutes out of each busy day, Mother would paint the chairs herself. Since Papa left no charge that he served without some building improvement, conference soon began to assign him to the place which most needed some such project carried through. One particular church stands as a monument to its determination. In the face of a large debt, hurdling insurmountable obstacles, with the cooperation of a few stewards, he built a dignified house of worship by lovingly handling every brick which went into its structure and by persisting when there was nothing left except the will which said, Keep on. Papa's building complex afforded us a continuous opportunity for one of the greatest joys of childhood, that of playing around a building under construction, watching the concrete mixer, walking planks on high scaffolding, and making footprints on wet cement. Usually it was the church which was reconditioned, but once in our lifetime, we knew the supreme elation of moving into a brand new house and calling it home. Moreover, although it was a parsonage, it must house other families following in our wake. It was built to fit our family. It still stands a motherly-looking home of nine rooms, the length and shadow of the only preacher's family numbering more than three children ever to live in it. When we moved to that town, the parsonage was ready to collapse and the congregation ready to build a new one, so Papa set to work drawing up the blueprints. The building committee indulgently granted him free reign in building it as large as and to whatever plan he pleased. Their indulgence balked, however, at one request. Being a sociable soul and liking to have large groups of his flock frolic about his home at one time, Papa wanted to build the whole first floor of the parsonage into one big party hall with only a kitchen to keep it company. This evoked a harumph from the men on the committee and a quick-spoken protest from the ladies. We must keep in mind, said the president of the Missionary Society, that as time goes on, there will be other pastors and other families. One of them might need a downstairs bedroom. So Papa relented. A bedroom was included in the first floor plan, but it was small, and its very walls seemed to apologize for its existence. Quickly, however, it justified its existence by serving as an anteroom where guests might leave their wraps on the way to the boastful, spacious living room. And thus the modest little cubicle became unknowingly a forerunner of the fashionable modern powder room. A house of our own. Proudly we moved into it, and more proudly we lived in it. From the crown of its roof to the sole of its foundation, it was new, bright, and unused. From structure to draperies to carpets to furniture, at last we had elbow room for ourselves and our souls. For three years we lived in that house, but two of those years I was harried by one thought to enjoy it fully. One day, visiting me for the first time in our mansion, a little friend said with awe, Hi, Aileen, your family's rich! And I vigorously nodded in assent. Hadn't we the largest, prettiest, newest house in town? With such a home, we stepped into the privileged class. Contentedly, I looked down from my ivory tower upon the less fortunate world. But a few Sundays later, a visiting preacher cast me from my happy pedestal with a verse of scripture. Ominously, he read, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. As I sat in the family pew with those words ringing in my ears, I closed my eyes and raised a petition. Oh, God. Don't let us, any of us die while we're rich and living in that house. 
God heard my prayer, we were spared. But for once I was thankful that there was an annual conference to snatch us from the yawning abyss of doom and set our feet once more on the path of heaven. None but Mother knew the reason for my utter relief when, in due time, conference transported us to a modest five-room cottage in another town. One of the compensations for living this nomad life was the delight of visiting the scene of the former habitat. We went often, but Papa went rarely. He maintained that it interfered with the work of a pastor for the former preacher to keep reappearing on the scene, so only upon special occasion or by request did he visit an earlier pastorate. On one such occasion, Papa was called to preach to a church dedicated to sermon. As a prologue to the sermon, he recalled happy days in the community, namely this person and that who had been a soldier of the Lord. Cheerfully, he came to the name of Brother Gardner. A few months before, Papa had indirectly heard of Brother Gardner's passing. Now he eulogized him, saying, He has now gone to the glory land, leaving holy footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another, sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing, shall take heart again. And with the respectful voice used for the speaking of the dead, he concluded, I am sure that all of you, as well as I, miss the blessing of his presence with us today. Then Papa went into his brief sermon, and at its end sat in the pulpit chair, while the choir sang the closing hymn. Before he ended the sermon, it was noticeable that Papa's face had turned from red to white and back to red. Now as he sat, his usual dignity was re placed by the shaking of his sides and suppressed laughter. At the close of the song, he stepped to the pulpit for an epilogue. This, like the prologue, entirely about Brother Gardner. My friends, he said, I'm sure that most of you are aware that Brother Gardner is not in heaven. He is still with us, thank God, sitting with his good wife in the fourth pew. Abandoned laughter burst from the congregation. Again, the doxology presented a graceful way out for Papa. As he said, let us stand and sing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow.